0: Thank you for tuning in to Emanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Hey, Once again, good morning, Emmanuel Faith. And if you're joining us online, really grateful that you are with us as well. Um, I just, I've got to warn you, um, our oldest son uh, is going to Hume Lake uh, this week. And so I really do want you to pray for Hume. And I have a vested interest in that. And many of you do as well. Uh, but I also, I had to drop him off at 6 a.m., which means I've been up since about five o'clock drinking coffee to the glory of God. And um, so I'm, I'm like ready to go today. And um, I hope that you are also. Um, I just finished a fascinating book entitled Never Split the Difference. Anybody read it? Uh, it's by a former FBI um, uh, negotiator named Chris Voss. And he walks through in this book, it's a fascinating sociological study, how, how the FBI works with um, hostage situations in order to essentially get what they want to get out of the circumstances that present themselves. And it was a fascinating book, but in one of the chapters, he talks about um, this thing he calls the black swan. And essentially, it goes like this. that uh, uh, Formerly, we only thought that there were white swans until we discovered that there was, in fact, a, a black swan. And so this idea of a black swan has gone to be, got, come to become a term that talks about something that's unexpected, something that changes everything in light of its appearance, that causes you to, to rethink everything that you know and to move forward in a different way because of it. So, so events can be like a black swan. 9-11 was a black swan. COVID was a black swan, yes. The end of apartheid in South Africa was a black swan. Dot-com boom of the 90s was a black swan. Um, when, when the Nuggets win the NBA championship tomorrow night, that'll be a black swan. <laughs> when, when the Padres win the World Series, they're never gonna win the World Series, you guys. They're never, it's never It's never gonna happen. Would it be a black swan? Yes, don't expect it though. Don't expect it. And that's the thing with black swans, they, they change the game. They change the landscape of the way that you think. In light of its appearance, everything is, is different. And today we're gonna to read about one of Jesus's black swan moments. That begins to shift the way that the disciples see and interact with him. And it begins to shift the expectations that people had of the Messiah. Because he is completely different than what anybody had expected. If you have your Bible, open it with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And I want you to have in mind, as you're sort of opening there and turning there, I want you to have in mind John chapter 3. Because in John chapter 3, Jesus met a man by the name of what? Nicodemus, right, and I think what John does, John's an artist, John's a poet, and John sets up his gospel account, not always in chronological order, and I think he puts these two stories right next to each other to uh, draw a contrast of sorts, because Nicodemus and the woman we're going to read about today um, couldn't be more different. I mean, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and the woman comes to him at midday, Nicodemus is is part of the elite. This woman is is ostracized. Uh, Nicodemus is a Jew. This woman is a Samaritan. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. But I think what John wants us to capture is as we read this, we should be thinking to ourselves, certainly if Jesus can meet these two people, he can meet me. He can meet me. And with that in mind, let's begin John chapter four. Are you there? It begins like this, says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees has heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then John wants to add this narrative note for us, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Now, now how cool is that? That from the get-go, Jesus is handing over ministry to his disciples. He's not the one man traveling baptism show. He's teaching his disciples how to do it so that they can keep doing it once he leaves. From the get-go, he is intentional. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And let's just read verse four together on three one, two, three. And he had to pass through Samaria. Everybody say, had to. Had to. He had to pass through Samaria. Did he really? Did he really? I mean, geographically speaking, he did not. Spiritually speaking, he did. In fact, most quote unquote good Jews would have avoided Samaria. There was really uh, multiple ways that you could get there, but most Jews would have gone to the east. They would have even gone to the east of the Jordan River that runs um, up here from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. They'd have gone east of the Jordan River, and then they would attract from Judea up north to get to the Galilean region, and they would have avoided Samaria at all costs. That's that purple region on the map. Why? Why? Well, well it's gonna take a little bit of history, but bear with me. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And when they did that, they would often take the strongest men and most of the men, and they would leave, leave some of the uh, women and kids behind. And after they took most of the men out, the Assyrians would send in their men in order to intermarry with the Jewish women who were still there. And so you had these people, uh, this tribe that came to be, that was um, part Assyrian, part Jew, and they got the name Samaritans. Now, along with their ethnicity, the Persians brought their religion. And so you had this sort of, this mishmash of people that were living in Samaria, and the Jews considered Samaritans inferior both racially and religiously. So much so that they would walk extra miles just to avoid interacting with them at all. And I don't know about you, but I love that Jesus cuts right through ignorance. He cuts right through narrow-minded prejudice and he goes right to the very place that most Jewish people would avoid. The story continues. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sikar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, a few notes that I want you to just become aware of. Um, Number one, we are told that this story is taking place at a well. Um, This is the only time this well specifically is mentioned in the scriptures. But wells in general have been mentioned often. I mean, if you go back through the story of scripture, you'll find that, that Abraham, when he sends his servant in order to find a wife for his son Isaac... Uh, That servant meets Rebecca at a well. And and by the way, by the way, you know you got no game when your dad has to send his employee to find you a wife. Can I get an amen, right? That's a whole other sermon. Jacob's life reaches a turning point at a well when he meets Rachel there. Remember, he starts crying immediately. Moses meets Zipporah at a well. I mean, we could go on and on and on. Wells seem to symbolize two things. They seem to symbolize love and life. Keep that in mind. The second thing we're told is that this is the sixth hour or, or, noon, or noon. We're about to be introduced to a woman who's going to meet Jesus at this well. Spoiler alert. And what we need to know is that few people would ever go to a well at noon. Uh, Most people went, most women went, because this was typically a woman's job, was to get water for their family. They would typically go um, either at dawn or at dusk. They would go with a group of other women because, A, it was not as hot outside, and B, the water would have been a lot cooler when they got it at one of those times. So it's quite possible that this woman isn't invited to go with the other women of her town, It's quite possible that she's going at midday in order to avoid even interacting with anyone. And it's quite possible that she's an outsider. She's ostracized from even her her own community. And from that point, we start what is the longest recorded conversation that Jesus had with anyone in any of the gospel accounts. So if you're ever on a Bible trivia show and they ask... What's the longest recorded conversation Jesus ever had with anyone? This is it. Verse 7, it starts. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, what? Give me a drink for the disciples had gone into the city to buy food. And and I made a a big deal about this woman being at the well at noon. But I think we just need to pause for a moment and acknowledge that not only is a woman at the well at noon, but the son of God who spoke the world into existence, who John has told us is with God in the beginning, who was God, who exegetes God perfectly. The son of God is at a well at noon, thirsty in the heat of the day also. And so let's step back far enough. Sure, it's astounding that this woman is there. It is earth shattering that Jesus is there. And I love that Jesus in this conversation places himself in the position of need. Hey, um, I, I didn't bring my bucket. Could you get me a drink? Can you help me out? Uh, um, Sir, I I spoke the stars into existence and I hold them together with the very breath of my word. I'm sustaining all things, but can you get me a drink? And I'm just struck by this, you guys, because I think so many times when we approach people, maybe people we disagree with because Jesus and this woman didn't see eye to eye on everything. Maybe people that we would have conflict with or even maybe enter into an argument with, we typically sort of puff up our chest a little bit and take a position of power. Jesus does the exact opposite. He embraces a posture of vulnerability and says, can you help me out? Can you help me out? And I've just started to wonder what would it look like if the church took this posture more often, rather than we've got all the answers. But can you help us out? We, we've got we've got we've got questions. Can you can you get me a drink? And the Samaritan woman says to him, how, "How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria?" For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You guys normally walk miles to avoid us. What's going on here? And she starts to point out all of the differences that Jesus and this woman have. I mean, she's a woman, he's a man. She's a Samaritan, he's a Jew. I mean, we could go on. He he is part of, he's a rabbi. She's ostracized from her community. I mean, we could go on and on and on. I mean, if we were to put it in our context, uh, this is Donald Trump meeting AOC at a well. Um, or, it's, or it's Putin meeting Zelensky at a well, okay? Or, or it's um, Kanye meeting Taylor Swift at a well, right? Like, These are two people who we would think of as enemies coming together and having a conversation at a well. It's a quote unquote chance encounter at midday. They're all alone. If it were were a romantic comedy, we would call it a meet cute, right? It's not, so we won't. But it's a chance encounter at a well that for all intents and purposes should not have happened. And Jesus looks at her and he says, listen, listen, hey, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you what? Living Living water. He would have given you living water. And we'll talk about all the details in just a moment, but let's just zoom out and talk about what we've seen. We've seen Jesus who breaks down ethnic, social and gender barriers in order to approach this woman and in order to offer her something she could never earn on her own. See, he goes to the well in order to have his need met. He needed water genuinely. He was tired. He was fully human. He was thirsty. But he goes to the well, more importantly, to offer something that she could never get out of that See, Jesus engages where others avoid so that he can offer what everyone needs. Jesus engages where others avoid so that he can offer what everyone needs. And I love, I just love this about Jesus, that Jesus enters the awkward. How many of you are grateful for that? That Jesus embraces the embarrassing. How many of you are grateful for that? That Jesus finds people on the fringes. How many of you are grateful for that? And the situations that most of us walk around, Jesus just walks straight toward. And he meets this at a woman, this this woman at a well. I think so that he can say to every single one of us in this room today, regardless of where you are, regardless of where you've been, you are never outside of the scope of Jesus meeting with you. Because if he met with her, the way that he met with her, Certainly, he will meet with you. See, Jesus, uh, this woman came to this well seeking water. I firmly believe Jesus went to the well seeking her. This woman who men had probably taken things from her her whole life, Jesus wants something for her. And I don't know what you came in these doors seeking today. I don't know what the, what the longings of your soul are, but I know that Jesus is present here, and I know what he's seeking here. He's seeking you. He's seeking you, just like he sought out this woman, because what he offered her, he wants to offer you. What he offered her, he wants to offer you, and so I just want to, in the rest of our time that we have together, I want to just try to answer that question, what does he offer her, And in so answering that, try to answer the question, what does he want to offer us also? So go back to verse 10 with me and look at this. It says this, Jesus answered her, if you knew the, what? What? Come on. The gift. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I love, I love this picture that Jesus paints. He goes, yeah, yeah, I, I came to the water and I asked you for something, but if you knew who I was, if you knew the core of my character, if you knew what I was able to do, you know what you would have done? You would have asked me for something. And you know what I would have done? I would have given you a gift. I, I would have given it to you freely. Freely because that's the way that God works. Jesus begins by making this point that what he delivers comes by sheer gift. You ask and it is simply given. In our Christian lexicon, we typically call this grace. God's unmerited favor towards us. Friends, friends hear me on this. Salvation is always a gift we receive. It is not a wage that we earn. It's a gift we receive. It is not a wage that we earn. And I'm struck by, in Jesus' conversation, he says to this woman, you would have asked. Which I think is a great thing for us to sit with for a moment. Did you know that asking is one of the key principles of life in the kingdom of God? Did you know that? Jesus would tell his disciples towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he would say to them, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you for everyone, everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, they find. And the one who who knocks, it will be opened to them. James would say, you have not because you, anybody know? Ask not, you ask not. Uh, Dallas Willard really helped me understand this when um, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he wrote, Asking is indeed the great law of the spiritual world through which things things are accomplished in cooperation with God and yet in harmony with the freedom and worth of every individual. Here's what he's saying. God will wait for us to ask because he doesn't want to override our freedom He doesn't want to impose. He's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on anyone. He waits for us to ask. So let me ask you this. What are you asking for this morning? What are you longing for? What are those deep desires that are just maybe latent within your soul that you need to bring forth and say, God, would you work? Would you move in this? God, I am asking. I'm knocking. Would you move? Jesus said, if you would have asked, I would have given it. So what are you asking for? Here's the way that the story continues. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and this well is deep. So where do you get that living water? You can tell she's like really trying. She's trying to put together these pieces. I believe you and yet you're here asking me for a drink. What's the deal? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Answer to that, yes, He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock. And now Jesus is gonna make it clear to her that he's not talking about the kind of water that you can get out of that well. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, pointing at that well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never thirst again. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water, welling up to what? Eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, (laughs) since you offered, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, and then she adds in, or have to come here to draw water. Like, I think she's imagining, like, an Evian delivery system at her door every morning, right? Like, so she's still not entirely tracking with what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing. And I think in order to understand what's going on, I think we have to try to put ourselves back in the context that Jesus lived in, in the place that Jesus lived in. See, because we can go to our faucet, we can turn on our faucet and we can get water out that that we can drink. We can take a shower. Hey, we can even let the water run while our shower warms up. It may shock you to hear, but they did not have that same technology. So for people in, in the ancient world, for people in an arid climate, water was life. If you didn't have water, you didn't have life. I mean, your body is 60% water. There's a reason that if you ever go to the hospital and you need to get checked up, one of the very first things they're going to do is get you hydrated. They know that you can only live three days without water. So when Jesus comes and offers this woman living water, I think he's saying, I have something that is essential for your soul, so essential that it's akin to like, like water that you would drink in order to be refreshed. I love the way that Tim Keller put it. He said this. He said, this conversation is like Jesus saying, I've got something for you that is as basic and necessary to you spiritually as water is to you physically. Something without which you are absolutely lost. What water does for your body, Jesus is offering for your soul. He's offering a soul satisfaction on a level that no one, no one, could have imagined coming. Now there's a detail that that I want to camp out on for just a moment because I think it's really, really important. Jesus said in verse 14, he, he said, the water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So how does Jesus satisfy? It's not through external. It's through something that happens on the inside. It's through a deep soul level satisfaction rather than an external pleasure. As Charles Spurgeon, the great silver tongue preacher put it, he said, nothing here below can fill an immortal soul. I think Jesus is saying there's nothing outside of you that can truly satisfy the thirst that is within you. There's nothing on the outside that can satisfy the thirst that's on the inside. Um, That relationship that you're looking for, it might be great, but it cannot satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. The accumulation in your bank account, it may be great, but it cannot satisfy the deepest longings in your soul. The position that you've longed for, the things that you've accumulated, they may be great, but they cannot touch the deepest desires that are latent within your soul. Only Jesus can satisfy that spot. And it happens on the inside. I think all those other things are great, but they're like splashing water on our face. It's refreshing, but it doesn't satisfy. You get the difference? And so Jesus talks to this this woman and he starts to address her. And then there's this like pivot in the conversation that at first can maybe seem a bit out of place, but I think it's right in line. See, because verse 15 ended with the woman saying, "Sir." Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 16. And Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. So does Jesus change the subject? Does he, does he pivot to something else? Give me this living water. Go bring your husband. At, on the surface, it seems like he does. But I would suggest to you that this conversation is completely in line with the conversation that they are having. Because what Jesus does is he invites her to living water and then he says, but in order to get there, we've got to talk about your deepest pain. We've got to talk about your deepest hurts. Because if I'm going to come in And I'm going to satisfy. I'm not going to do that in a vacuum. I'm going to do that right in line with your story. So let's talk about the husbands that you've had, the five husbands. And who knows how those husbands became not husbands, okay? It could have been through death. It could have been through divorce. And now she's in this place where she's living with somebody who's not her husband. Why would she do that? Well, probably because she needed shelter and she needed food. And back in the first century, a woman who'd been through what she had been through had very little options of how they were going to get enough to survive. And so Jesus says, yeah, 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 living water. But let's talk about where your soul really ultimately needs to be satisfied. She's experienced a ton of pain and a ton of anguish, and she is in this spot where everything else she's relied on and hoped on has let her down. Her life is a broken cistern that water is seeping through, and Jesus says to her, I have come to bring you living water and eternal life. And see, Jesus often will start with our pain in order to lead us to his provision. He'll talk to us about the things that hurt most so that he can lead us to the thing that satisfies ultimately. So let me, let me just ask you, if Jesus were to come and have a conversation with you about your deepest pain, what would he talk to you about? What would he talk to you about? Would he talk about the same thing that he talked to this woman about? I mean, let, let's, let's talk about divorce. Let's talk about death. Uh, would he talk about a failure? Would he talk about a decision he made on one night? Would he talk about a relationship? Would he talk about a job? Would he talk about a family member? If Jesus came to you and went straight to the heart of your deepest pain so that he could fill it with his promise and provision, what would he talk to you about? See, Jesus needs to get to the place of her deepest hurt so that he can fill that place with his love, with his grace, with his forgiveness, with his mercy. He needs to get there so that she can be at the bottom to then receive the fact that she is known, valued, and loved by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if she hides her pain and she hides her hurt, then she might move forward, splashing water on her face, but it will never satisfy the deepest longings of her soul. And he wants to say, even in that spot, I'm enough even in the things you've walked through and the pain that you've walked through and the hurt that you've experienced, even then my living water does not run dry. And I think what he's saying to her is, listen, it's on the inside. The world didn't give it. The world can't take it away. So let's talk about all the pain and all the sorrow and all the shame and all the guilt. Let's bring it out in the open so that your soul can receive the satisfaction that it was designed for. And from there, the story takes another, maybe unexpected turn, that I think is actually way more in line than we often read it. It says a woman said, sir, uh, I perceive you're a prophet. <clears throat> and, and some people would read that going, like, she's changing the subject, things got uncomfortable. So let's let's pivot and talk about, you. enough about me. Let's talk about you, you're a prophet. Our father's worshipped on this mountain, I think she probably points to Mount Gerizim. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship so so which is it? and it seems as though this question could sort of come out of nowhere we 've gone from talking about water to talking about marriage to talking about worship, but if you'd been if you'd been exposed, if you'd been caught. Caught in sin, that the man you're living with isn't your husband. If your deepest brokenness and deepest pain was broadcast to everyone, and out in the open, what would you want to do? I mean, I mean, where where do you go with that? Where do you go with that? Uh, maybe this woman is simply asking, "Hey, hypothetically, how do I?" get right with God. Like where, where do I take all of my pain? Where do I take my hurt to find healing and wholeness? Where do I take my sin to find forgiveness? This mountain or that mountain? Jesus, why don't you tell us, where do I go with my pain? And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour's coming when neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He goes, if you're really asking and you really wanna know which mountain's right, he goes, it's the mountain in Jerusalem. That's the true temple. That's where people were, were made right with God. But an hour is coming and is now here when the game's changing. The hour is coming, Jesus said, and is now here when the true worshipers, everybody say true worshipers will worship, true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I love that. God is on the prowl looking for people whose heart is devoted to him in worship. And here's my question. Will he find you? Will he, will he find me? If that's what he's looking for, will he find us? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And I think what Jesus tells her is it's not about you going to God. Whether going to Jerusalem or going to Mount Gerizim, it's not about you going to God. God has come to you. And Jesus tells this woman, regardless of where you are, you can worship because worship is not about a where. Worship is about a who and worship is about a how, but it is not about a where. I think this is totally in line with living water. This is totally in line with talking about this woman's brokenness and her pain and her sin. Because now he's telling her, this is how you can be made right. This is how your soul can be made full and whole. And it's through true worship, through true worship. And that worship happens, he says, in two different, with two different components attached to it. The first is that true worship, the kind of worship the Father's seeking out, happens through, through spirit, through spirit. And, and I love this because we've already read in the Gospel of John when Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the, what? Spirit. spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And I think what Jesus is saying is the same spirit that awakens you to life with God is also the same spirit that carries you into worship of God, same spirit that reveals the words of God, same spirit that comforts you. That same spirit that awakens you is the one that causes you to adore. So he says, listen, worship happens through spirit. And I love this because she wanted to go to a temple to go through some ritual. And I think what Jesus is saying is genuine encounter, not rote ritual, is the way of true worship. It's not about going through the motions. It's not about checking the boxes. It's about meeting with the living God. And the living God lives within us by the power of his spirit. So we can meet with him anytime, anyplace, anywhere. And, And then he says it's also about truth. And we go, what is truth? Truth is simply reality. It's it's that which aligns with what is real. So what is real? Well, if you keep reading in the story, the woman says, listen, um, I know that Messiah, who's called the Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for laughing. Because I think that this is this woman's way of saying, that was a good try. (laughs) Jesus, I can see you really put effort into that answer. And someday we're gonna get the answer, but your answer will suffice for now. And then we get what I would argue is the clearest um, statement from Jesus himself about his deity. Jesus declared, I, the one who is speaking to you, I am he, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. I am the one that you've been waiting for. Let's not talk about mountains. Let's talk about the Messiah. Let's not talk about where you go to worship. Let's talk about who you go to worship. And the one that you are called to worship is me, Jesus says. So we worship in spirit, which means genuine encounter, not rote ritual. But we also worship in truth, which means adoration of Jesus, nothing less, nothing less. And so Jesus claims that the forgiveness and healing that this woman is looking for can be found at a well. It doesn't have to be found in a temple. It can be found through an interaction with the Messiah, not through the sacrifices that she would make. This is a black swan. This changes the game definitively from that point forward, from that point forward. And listen to the way the story continues. Just then the disciples came back and they marveled. That's one word for it. They they were shocked. They were in awe. They were probably like, oh, that's not good for our PR, right? (laughs) That he was talking with this woman and no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Now, see, I love this detail. No one said that. And I would just have expected Peter to say it, okay? I just think Peter's having an off day here. Because normally Peter would be like, what are you doing? We don't do that. Jesus, I'll take you aside. I I will correct privately, praise publicly. I get it. But come here, let's have a conversation. And he does it. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar there and went away into town and said to the people, come and see, come and see, come and see. Does that sound familiar? We heard that in John chapter one. It's the very thing that um, Andrew said to Nathaniel, come and see, come and see. Come and see the man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ, the Messiah, the one we're waiting for? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Don't you love this woman's testimony? It's simple. Come and see. Come and see what he told me everything I ever did. You've just got to come and see. So you get the picture that there's this flood of Samaritans leaving this little town in order to meet Jesus. See, everyone around Jesus recognizes how countercultural this conversation is, so countercultural that the disciples don't even want to talk about who Jesus was talking to. Like they're not even willing to go there. And yet Jesus sees a new way to be human a new way for genders to relate to one another, a new way for people who disagree on religions to relate to one another, a new way for races, a new way for classes. And and Jesus is, is bringing something completely new to the table. And it's starting to change everything. And this woman's like, I've got to go and share. She's an evangelist to her town. Come with me, come and see. Meanwhile, the disciples are urging him saying, Rabbi, you should eat something maybe it's their way of saying, you seem a little bit disoriented. Let's get some food in that belly, right? But he said to them, this is one of my favorite lines that Jesus ever says. And I feel like you should just put this in your pocket for a party. Someone's like, hey, would you like a little bit more of this dip? And you can say, no, I have food to eat that you know nothing about, right? I think that... Jesus says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him some food? Like, did this guy get DoorDash? Like, is, this pita? is there pitas to go somewhere that we're unaware of? Did we not have to go into town? What's the brother eating? And Jesus said to them, listen guys, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. When I, Jesus says, live in obedience to my father, there is a sustaining grace that I've been given that's available for you too. A sustaining grace that can carry you, a hidden manna, if you will, that you only access through obedience to Jesus, where he sustains you supernaturally. And I just, I just felt this morning like this was a word for somebody here today that you're thinking of giving up, you're thinking of tapping out, that things have gotten really hard and really dark and really painful, and you're going, can I keep putting one foot in front of the other? And I think I've been sent as a messenger from Jesus to you today to say there is hidden manna, there is sustaining grace that Jesus wants to offer you freely. As you say yes to him, he wants to give you the sustenance to fill your soul, that his energy would powerfully work within you. So keep going, friends. Don't Give up. And here's how the story ends. Verse 35. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? And they're like, yeah, I guess we say that. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. And I think he says, Look, lift up your eyes because there's Samaritans that are coming. (laughs) They're there. Lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Don't you just love that Jesus does the sowing? We get the chance to do the reaping, we get the chance to hold out the invitation of the good news of the gospel. And what Jesus says is, isn't it great that we get to rejoice with our Father when He brings new people into His kingdom? For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others labored and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. That's, that's her testimony. Like that's it. Like she didn't like unpack it theologically. She's like, come and see. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. <laughs> just, let's just hit pause for a moment and can you imagine how frustrated his disciples were when he said, hey boys, we're gonna camp out for two days here. They're like, whoa, 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 we, we knew we shouldn't have said yes to going Jesus's way, right? And Jesus is like, no, we're setting up shop because these people need a Messiah. They, they, they need the Christ. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. And I love it that her testimony is come and see. But her testimony isn't the thing that changes them eternally. It's the spirit of God. It's the work of God. It's Jesus himself who meets with them. And when they see him, they are transformed forever. Forever. But I think this Samaritan woman paints for us a great picture of the fact that those who've been satisfied by Jesus naturally share Jesus. Just come and see. So I just want to invite you this week to maybe just have in mind just this, this, this thought, like what, what would it look like for me to do the exact same thing? Like what would it look like for me to hold out that hope? Come and, come and meet the man who, what? Come and meet the man who, who saved me from my sin. Come and meet the man who's showered me with love. Come and meet the man who comforted me even when. Come and meet the man who's called me in spite of me. Come and meet the man who's forgiven me. Come and meet Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is exalted over all and who's called us into his kingdom and into his mission and into his life. Come and meet the one who has streams of living water. Come and meet that one. Which, which brings me back to the disciples. If you go back to the very beginning of this passage, what you'll find is that Jesus and his disciples all come to the well at the same time. And the disciples are, are hungry, so they they go into town. And um, that well is about a half mile outside of town. And at the same time they're coming into town, who's going to the well? Come on. That Samaritan woman. We're not talking about a six-lane highway. This isn't the 15 people. This is a small dirt road probably in Samaria. So if the disciples are going into town and the woman is going to the well, who who do the disciples walk past on their way to town? They walk past this Samaritan woman. And I think in verse 35 when Jesus says, Lift up your eyes. I think he's saying, look, there's Samaritans coming to the well to meet me. And I think he's saying, and next time, boys, next time you're on the road, instead of looking away, instead of identifying all the reasons that you would never talk to her or never make eye contact with her or never open your life to her, next time, what if you've lifted your And what if you told your story? And what if you broke through the barriers that other people want to honor and other people want to respect? What if you took your cue from your Messiah who has said, no, no, no. I am not gonna play by the religious and cultural games. I am gonna approach the people that others avoid so I can bring what everyone needs. See, Jesus met this woman at this well to tell her how she could be made well, how she could be made whole, to boldly declare to her that even when sorrows and sea billows roll, that because of the living water that Jesus offers, we can say it is well with my soul. It's because of that offer that Jesus makes to every single one of us a free gift of a satisfied soul of true worship and of sustaining grace that we can say even when even when life all around us is swirling and even when the storm is raging if the water doesn't get into the boat the water the boat is completely safe and we can say it is well with our soul that is unexpected and that changes everything It changes everything. May it change us. May it change us. Let's pray. Just wanna give you a moment, just you and Jesus. If he were to come to you and bring up the things that, that are most painful, the things that you're running from, the things you didn't wish happened. If he were to come to you and have a conversation about the things that are most painful, what would he talk to you about? And then I just want you to hear him say over you, if you ask, I will give living water, bubbling up to eternal life. Jesus, we long for that water. We long for that water, that that free gift, that satisfied soul, that heart of worship, your sustaining grace, we long for that water. May our hearts not be broken cisterns. May they be whole that they may hold what you want to pour out. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.